911, what's your emergency? I, um, I need someone right now. Please come. Are you in immediate danger? Can you get away from the location? No, I, I, I don't know. I think someone's here. In your house, with you? Yes. I've dispatched an officer to your location. Please stay on the line until they arrive. Okay. Can you tell me anything else? Anything for the officers to know? Um, I... There's this videotape. Come again? A videotape? I bought a box of old VHS tapes at an estate sale. Horror and comedy stuff from the 80s. Um... Police are on their way. What about the tape? One of them was, um... Homemade. Recorded. It was a bunch of random kills and scenes from old horror movies. Like, uh, um, Supercut you'd see on YouTube, you know? But it's... it's really old. Then it changed to other scenes of people being killed and... it looked real. Like a real killer filming his crimes. Like a snuff film, you know? But with... lots of kills. One after another. And you feel you may be in danger from the person who made the tape? Um, like after the last kill on the tape, the scene changed. Now it's showing the inside of my apartment. I can see myself on the couch, on the phone, like the TV is filming me. Oh my god, I'm so scared. Please stay calm. Look, I know it sounds crazy, but I'm telling the truth. I understand. The police are almost there. I just need you to stay calm and answer one more question. Can you do that for me? Hello? Yes? Can you see me standing behind you? VHS tapes have poor quality video and audio, best to be avoided, especially the ones that will kill you. That's what we learned from author William Stewart, from the tale which was this episode's cold open, Estate Sale Hall, performed by Graham Rowett and Jesse Cornett. 
I want to start this episode by sending my heartfelt thanks to everyone who joined us at the Stanley Hotel last weekend. From the cast who performed marvelously, to the many writers who showed up and shared their excellent tales with us. Of course, to Mike, Kate, and Samantha, who were so delightful and fun. And most of all, to the fans who attended and made us all feel so loved and appreciated. It was such an amazingly special event. And who knows, maybe we'll do it again next year. I hope we can return to the haunted Stanley Hotel for a weekend of sleepless delights. And speaking of being delightfully sleepless, I trust we're all still alive, well, for now. This week features the final chapter of the series, This Book Will Kill You. Alexander Gordon Smith's epic tale has reached the end. We hope you've enjoyed it. Well, maybe enjoyed isn't the right word. Let's just say we hope you're all going to survive it. A big thanks to Alexander for writing it, and to Jessica McAvoy for adapting and starring in it. To all involved, thanks for entertaining us, uh, before killing us. And now, check under the bed and pull the sheets up tight. The darkness is here, but you'll be sleepless tonight. In our first tale, we meet a man who prides himself on finding the most unique and rare vinyl records. Not just the classics of rock and jazz, but the really rare audio that's been almost lost to time. But in this tale, shared with us by author Matt Bliss, upon purchasing an unlabeled record, he discovers that the audio holds deep, dark secrets therein. Performing this tale are Matthew Bradford, Ellie Hirschman, and Peter Lewis. So let's listen, listen closely to the tale as the man tells us, I found it at the record store. I like to think I have a keen eye for rarities. Somehow, every time my fingers flick through the weathered sleeves in the back of a shop, I always find that one gem. That one overlooked record that eluded not only the eye of the store's clerk, but every other person who browsed past it. This time was different. I could tell it was different the moment my fingertips touched it. It just felt different. The paper jacket was sharp, jagged at the end, which isn't a good sign, but it did catch my attention. The plain yellow covering had seen better days, and those days were probably a very long time ago. It practically fell from the sleeve into my hand, running to me like it wanted me to have it. There were no label visible, no markings. I held it to the light and examined it. Slightly warped, but for its age, pretty clean. No scratches, scuffs, or skate marks, and also no track breaks in the grooves. Just one long recording. Strange. It was a very old, very clean, mystery record. And it was only 50 cents well worth it. I went to place it back in the sleeve, and that's when I noticed there was something else inside. I tilted the jacket and shook until it slid free, falling like a leaf from a tree. A photograph. The dated black and white picture lay face down on the floor. My heart pounded like a bass drum as I picked it up. In my years of digging, I found some strange stuff hidden in records. Money, concert tickets, drugs, 
I always like finding those things, but I'd never come across anything like this before. It was a weathered picture of a boy wearing a long forgotten style of clothes, leaning against a tombstone. His eyes were solid white in that weird way eyes looked in old photos. I shivered at the sight. Just an old photo, I told myself, but something about it seemed to crawl under my skin. The boy's look, the grave, the odd place that I found it, it was unsettling. I mean, it could have been anyone, maybe even my grandpa as a child, standing at someone's grave on the farm. The farmhouse behind him did look familiar, didn't it? It wasn't, and it didn't. I glanced around and no one was watching, so I slipped the picture into my pocket. I tossed the record in the stack with a few more randomly selected records and went to the register. 50 cents, I thought as he rang it up. A deal for any record. But what in the hell was this one? Noodles came right up to me when I got home. His meowing echoed in the empty place as he rubbed himself around my ankle. At least she didn't take you. I brushed the side of his cheek and scooped him up. Or you, I said, stepping inside my vinyl stuffed den. I mean, it was all I had now. My turntables, my record collection, and my cat. My ex took everything from me, but I would never let her take those things. I put noodles on his perch by the window and pulled the mystery record from under my arm. I looked it over again and held it up to noodles. Uh, what do you think, huh? Tommy Johnson, Frank Wilson? He held his leg up and started licking it in that weird way cats do. Thanks, real helpful. I set the record down and removed the picture. My veins ran cold at the sight of it. Why? What was it about this one that seemed so different? I turned it over. Nothing on the back. The picture had to be 80, 90 years old. What did that say about the record? I set the photo on a shelf above the turntables. I mean, it felt like the boy was watching me while I held this strange record to my eye. I flipped it over. Only this time I noticed a faint A scratched by hand near the spot a label would be. I placed it on the turntable, A side up, and flipped the knob, bringing the disc to life. It wobbled as it spun, waving with that warping I noticed earlier. I switched to line one on the mixer, slid the fader left, and thumbed the volume to a comfortable four. Alright, here we go, Newt. I looked over, but he was gone. Cats. I reached toward the needle, ignoring the small tremble in my hand. I felt like this before when putting on a record, but it was usually from excitement. Not like this. I was afraid. Actually afraid for some reason. I swung the arm over as carefully as my hand would allow and placed the needle at the record's edge. A short thump of bass sounded as the needle touched the vinyl and bobbed with its movements. I held my breath until the pop and hiss came through the speakers. You know, every time I hear that sound, I feel a warm fuzz surge through me. And even then, under the nervousness, I was buzzing with excitement. I, mean, I was probably the first person to hear this thing in almost a hundred years. I leaned closer. The static grew louder. I focused my ear and slid the volume up a hair. There was nothing. Until, suddenly, screams erupted from the speakers. I jumped back as the blood-curdling sound continued. Harsh, painful cries rumbled across the speakers. 
I ripped the needle off the record, letting it squeal as I dragged it across the grooves. Ah, what the hell? I recoiled away from the table as the record continued to spin. I was out of breath, ears still ringing with the sound, and I could feel my heartbeat in my throat. I waited a moment, just watching it, trying to slow my pulse, to process what it was I heard. I mean, those screams, it sounded like pure torture. I've heard screams and songs before, but this wasn't that. This was pain, pure, distilled suffering, carved into wax. I approached the table as if it might reach up and grab me. Slowly, I flipped the power switch and watched the record creep to a halt. I stared at the black circle with even more questions now. I let out a flimsy breath and looked to the picture on the shelf. He moved. The boy in the picture turned his lifeless eyes towards me, smiled, and then waved. What is happening to me? I paced outside the closed door to the den, too afraid to go back inside. Was I going crazy? Pictures don't move. Records don't scream. I knew there was something funny about that damn record, only I didn't expect this. I couldn't get it out of my head. The picture moved. I'd seen it before running and splashing water on my face, and it didn't make sense. I stood at the door, convincing myself that I was wrong. I mean, I had to be, because the only other explanation was bad. I pulled myself together and opened the door. The room looked the same. A good sign, I thought. I walked to the table and looked at the picture. There he was, the boy, standing in the same position and definitely not moving. Okay, so maybe I'm tripping. I looked to the record on the turntable. Maybe it was laced with LSD or, or at least some toxin that messed with my head. The only way to find out would be to listen again. I mean, I had to see what in the hell it was. I had to know for sure. So, again, I flicked the power on and the record spun to life. I lowered the volume and then reached for the needle's arm. The record hissed with static as I lowered the needle to its edge. And I waited. Screams rang over the fuzz once again, and the sounds were just as painful. They hurt. Each throat-shattering scream sent a wave of torment through my chest. I wanted to stop it. I wanted to rip the record off the table and break it. I reached for the record when suddenly it all went quiet. I paused, leaning in as tears filled my eyes when... The men surround me, their faces hidden by the hoods of their cloaks, but I know who they are. I know what they want. They speak words I don't know. They, they speak as one. The liquid falls on me. It burns. My insides scream. More burning. I writhe as they watch. The thing inside me grows with rage. I don't want it here. Their books close with a puff of dust. It's closer now. I see the glints of their blade. They raise it. I scream. My insides scream. Something crackles beside me. The blade moves. The sound grows louder, repeating, pushing the darkness away until I hear... The record clicked and repeated, spinning at its end. I was on the floor of my den, sweat dripping from my face. It wasn't a dream, though. I was there. I watched it happen to me, my body, the burning inside it. I placed a hand to my gut, feeling for anything stirring inside. Nothing. 
I rose to turn off the turntable and look to the photo. The boy was gone. The grave, the farm, it was all there, but the boy had disappeared. I took the photo from the shelf, watching it, waiting for something to move again. It didn't. But something was written on the other side. 166 Forest Glen. This definitely wasn't there before. I would have noticed it. I set down the picture and wiped away tears. I had no idea what was happening, but now I knew where to look to find out. Asking my ex to watch Noodles was a hard pill to swallow, but I had no other choice. And after a day and a half of driving through the middle of nowhere, I ended up on the remains of a farm. The fields were swampy now, but I followed an old path through a rusted fence until it led me to a house with the same address. Windows long since boarded over were tagged by some adventurous graffiti artist. I walked around the place, pressing through the tall weeds and listening to the insect noises from inside. Sunlight filtered through the trees as the breeze chilled the sweat clinging to my skin. Not once did I stop to think, what am I doing? I mean, it all seemed normal. Dropping everything, driving across two states, and circling an abandoned farmhouse because I found the address on a picture that used to show a boy, but he disappeared when I listened to a screaming record. You know, totally normal. I held out the photo and scanned the scenery, circling around the back of the house with the picture raised, trying to line it up with reality. Suddenly, there it was. The tree matched, the crumpled remains of a barn behind it matched, and sticking up from the ground, right where it should be, was the tombstone. I practically dropped the picture. I walked forward, flicking between what I saw around me and the photo, until the scene matched up. This is where they took the picture, I said aloud as if the boy was listening. I expected him to be there with me. He wasn't. I moved forward until I stood over the grave and kneeled to read the inscription. May his sacrifice be our rapture. No name, no dates, just the one ominous line. I reached down to touch it, and as my fingertips brushed the stone, screams erupted inside me. The same screams from the record. I jumped back and covered my ears, but still, I heard them. I could feel them, as if someone dragged my body across the grooves of a record and the sound reverberated from within. Visions carved into my head like a needle on wax. Suddenly, I knew what to do. I fell to my knees and clawed at the soil, scraping against a stony ground. My fingers stood rigid like claws, scratching until the top layer cleared away and rasped against the underlying wood. Splinters raised up like needles across the grain. I pushed the remainder of dirt aside until I could trace the wooden edges. A small square with a rust-stained ring on one side. I grabbed the ring and pulled. The hinges screamed like the record as a door swung open with a shudder of air. Dirt plumed around me. I waved a hand at the cloud, choking on the dusty taste. Grit blurred my eyes, but I could see wooden steps disappearing into the darkness below the headstone. He was down there, I told myself. I feel him calling. I feel his pain, even from the past. The light from my phone was barely enough to see by, but it was all I had. Grit blurred my eyes, but I could see wooden steps disappearing into the darkness below the headstone. He was down there, 
I told myself. I feel him calling. I feel his pain, even from the past. The light from my phone was barely enough to see by, but it was all I had. The space lit up in a faint blue glow, revealing stairs and a tunnel beyond. I put my foot on the first step and tested it with my weight. It held. I stepped down underneath the grave, listening to the wooden groan of each boar along the way. The air was stale in my lungs, a forgotten place refusing to succumb to time. Posts braced earthen walls, walls that could collapse at any moment. I aimed the light toward the end of the tunnel and saw the gleam of red paints in the distance. I moved closer, each step crunching under the pounding of my pulse. I reached the door at its end. Red paint gleamed among the gray boards, a symbol painted on its surface, six lines that met to a point at the bottom with an arc running through them. I raised my hand to touch it, but stopped. I couldn't know if it would be like the record or the tombstone, if touch alone would plague me with its visions. But there was no going back. I put my hand on the wood and felt nothing grit, so I pushed it open. It swung open without a sound, unveiling a room that was dark, cold, and much bigger than I would have imagined. I walked inside, my breath reverberating off the layered brick walls. Each stone must have been hand-laid, and much care was taken to keep the room concealed. I scanned the blackness with the light, taking in the open space and its fetid air. Were you down here? I asked, listening to my voice echo across the room. I looked at the picture, still grasped in my sweaty hand, but he still wasn't there. I moved towards the center, letting the light trace over an oversized stone slab, and I saw him. Bones. That's all he was now. Bones left and forgotten. Until me. Until I found him. Much like the forgotten records that everyone browsed past, not recognizing them for what they were. Until I did. I was always the one to find the lost and forgotten. That's why he called to me. That's why I found his record. I looked at his remains and my heart panged with sadness. Only a child laying with hands crossed at his chest. They did this to you. People you knew, people you loved. They did this and left you here. I held up the photo and looked inside. There he was. Holding the photo above his remains, the boy's image moved from behind the tree. It walked across the scenery, pausing, jumping, moving in quick jerky motions. I tried to blink away the discomfort and drop the picture fluttered down to his corpse like a butterfly. My feet plodded back while I watched him move closer. Slowly, he shifted his way toward the front of the frame until taking up the entire image. His eyes were still white and they never seemed to leave me. Back pressed against a stone pillar, I watched the boy reach through and grab the edges of the frame. His gray fingers jutted from the photo. Sculptures come to life, worms wriggling for a hold. They grasped the sides and pulled it wider, stretching until his head burst through the opening. His eyes never left me. I was stuck to the stone, petrified by the sight before me. The boy pulled his shoulders over the frame, gray, sullen skin climbing into reality, joints twisting in strange ways as his body squirmed through the window to the past. He rose above the picture and stood over his corpse. 
Still, he watched me. I wanted to run, every part of my insides telling me to get as far away from that boy, that thing, as quickly as I could. But I didn't. He lunged off the table, surging straight for me. I shriveled back and turned away, pressing my eyes shut, too afraid to watch. Thank you. He spoke in a breath-like whisper. It was soft and warm, like the static on a record. I lifted my eyes. He stood in front of me, wearing a smile from ear to ear below colorless eyes. You're welcome. He stepped to the stone slab and lay a hand on the bones. His bones. He looked at the remains with a hint of sadness, but still held the smile. I moved to him, but when I stepped from the pillar, his mouth opened with a crack. His jaw widened, distended, and he tilted up to the ceiling. Black mist escaped from the glowing hole, pouring from the bits and pieces within him as his image slowly faded into the stream. The remains before him did the same, turning black, twisting, rising into the air like burnt ash. I watched his body, his image, his spirit rise into the ether and fade from existence. It only took a moment before there was nothing left but a stone slab and faded photograph. I wiped the wetness from my eyes with the sleeve of my shirt. I mean, it was beautiful. I felt like I truly saved him. And the thought of him trapped in there for so many years, abandoned, forgotten, waiting for someone to set him free. It was all so sad. And yet my heart swelled with the thought that I was able to set him free. I was able to save him. To rescue the forgotten, as I've always tried to do. Goodbye, I said with a hand on the slab, and I turned to leave, feeling satisfied that I played my part. It had been pouring rain the whole trip back, and I was just thankful to have survived the white-knuckle drive. Psst, psst, psst. I called out as I stepped inside. Noodles, I'm back, buddy. He didn't come. I poked my head around the bare place, but he didn't show himself. Odd, I thought, wondering if my ex finally took him, too. I quickly opened the door to the den and stepped inside. My records were still there. At least she didn't take them. I relaxed, but only a moment, before I heard the sound from the speakers. A repeating soft crackle followed by a whump, the sound of a needle riding the end of the record as it spun. I treaded to the turntable, and sure enough, there it was. The mystery record, spinning on top with a needle at its end. The crackle, the whump, playing again and again. Did I leave the record on the table? I mean, surely I would never be so careless to leave it playing like that. I pressed stop on the player and watched it wind down, staring at it. After the whole ordeal with the boy, I thought the record would just vanish or turn a black mist or something. But there it was. I leaned closer. The line scratched on it. The A weren't there. And this was the B-side. It struck me then that I hadn't listened to the B-side. I reached down and carefully lifted the needle, moving the arm, and instead of placing it back on its rest, setting it at the start of the grooves. I powered on the turntable. Again, pops and warm static filled the room. I watched the record spin, eyeing the rise and fall of the disc, and I waited. This time, I didn't hear the screams that I expected on the other side, 
but instead, it was a voice, a man's voice. Chosen be the one who hears the screams of the forsaken and rises to the call of the banished. Only then will the circle be complete. I turned the volume up higher and let the chill rise up my spine. Let the old one call to him from the screams of beyond. Let the realm be opened to release his wrath upon us. Wait, what? Thunder crack like a whip above me. Just strange timing, I suppose. I looked up to the window to see what was happening outside and was taken aback by the sight of Noodles sitting on his perch growling at me. Noodles? He hissed at me. Buddy, it's me, don't... But I stopped, because when I stepped closer, I looked out to the sky outside. It was dark, with clouds swirling in the distance. Let him come in the form he chooses. Let him open the portal and bring forth the dominion of old. Let him come. Nudo swatted at me before darting away leaving only the window in the swirling red sky outside. But what startled me the most was my own thin reflection looking back at me. My eyes were cloudy and white. They watched me through the static, and just then, my own reflection waved at me, just like the boy in the photo. Lightning cracked again and split the sky in two, spilling black mist from the void at its center. If my years of digging through used records have taught me anything, it's that you always listen to the B-side first. Yet as I watched the horrid creatures pour from the void in the sky, my own reflection smiled, staring back through static-filled eyes. He was part of me now, no longer forgotten, no longer lost, or waiting for a collector. Now, he was free. And together, we watched and listen as the screams of beyond played a rarity of its own. If your job involves going to remote places to collect things for the company, you might think it's okay if you bring home some souvenirs. Nothing wrong with a little gift for the kids, right? Well, in this tale, shared with us by author Warren Benedetto, we meet a man whose job is really out there as an asteroid miner. And he recounts the fallout from a co-worker who decides to bring home a souvenir from way, way out there. Performing this tale is Jake Benson. So stick to bringing home a little trinket or a t-shirt. The last thing you should bring home is a piece of the sky. With all due respect, sir, 
You don't know what you're talking about. There was no way Bakley could have known what the thing was when he picked it up. It looked like a rock. Hell, it was a rock. Just a hunk of the asteroid's crust that he grabbed as a souvenir for his kid. There's no way he could have known it was a nest. I'm telling you, there was nothing, nothing out of the ordinary about the thing. It was small enough to fit into his chest pack. That was all. That's why he picked it up. I think he said something about how Evie, that's his daughter, about how Evie would love it. It was tar black with some gold flecks in it that sparkled like stars in the light from his headlamp. He said it looked like a chunk of the universe had broken off right in his hand. That's what he was going to tell Evie. That he had brought her a piece of the sky. Maybe if he'd dropped the rock into his hip pack instead, none of this would have happened. I don't know. The chest pack. It was right up against his body. I think the things must have sensed his body heat, or maybe his heartbeat, or his breathing. Whatever it was, something woke them. Something made them hatch. Something made them... hungry. We were talking about Evie when it happened. He was telling me about the latest videos his wife had uploaded, about how much bigger Evie had gotten in the two years since he'd last been home. She had turned two right before he left, and now she was celebrating her fourth birthday. That's why he picked up the rock. He promised he'd bring her something extra special as a surprise. He sent her a whole video about it, making it sound like he was on a great adventure. A big deal treasure hunt instead of a non-union mining expedition. God, he loved that kid so much. He just wanted to make her happy and proud. He really wanted her to have something to show off to her friends, to prove that her dad really did go to work in outer space. What better way to do that than to bring home a piece of the sky? <laughs> yeah, I know about the protocols, but I hate to break it to you, sir. Nobody gives a fuck about the protocols. Who cares if we pick up a rock or two? We did stuff like that all the time. Everyone does, the whole crew. On every new expedition, we'd bring something home with us. I've got a whole drawer full of rocks at my place. Ceres, Themis, Fortuna, Juno, two from Juno, actually. Nothing bad ever happened. Nobody ever got hurt. Right, sir. Until now. I'd say it was maybe two or three minutes from the time he put the rock into his pack to when he started to scream. He was behind me when he fell, so I didn't see him go down. I just heard him yell. When I turned around, he was already on the ground, rolling on his back and pouring at his visor. I ran to him to see if I could help. I thought maybe he had a breach in his suit, like maybe he was losing oxygen or something. But it wasn't that. It was worse. It was so much worse. They were eating his face, man. Dozens of them. Writhing, rust-coloured worms just devouring him alive inside his helmet. Each one was as thick as my finger, with a segmented body and a mouth full of pin-sharp iron teeth. And I could hear them. His mic was turned on, so there was this sound, this wet crunching and squelching that was like, I don't know, like the sound your boots make in muddy gravel during a rainstorm. It wasn't gravel, it was bone. Skin and muscle and bone, all of it being gnashed into a pulp by those horrible churning moors. Mostly what I heard though, were his screams. The mics in our helmets aren't designed for that kind of sound at that volume, so the shrieks were so distorted that they barely sounded human. The noise made me flash back to the day when my dad took me to visit my uncle at the slaughterhouse where he worked. It was like the sound of dozens of terrified pigs. 
all of them squealing at once as they realised what was about to happen to them. It was the sound of abject terror, of mortal fear. Then, just as suddenly as the screaming had started, it stopped. The inside of Bakley's visor was so smeared with blood and gore that I couldn't see through it anymore. But based on the sound, I could guess what had happened. The worms had forced their way into his mouth. I could hear him gurgling, strangling on his own blood, trying desperately to draw a breath as the worms chewed through his tongue and into his throat. Bakley was my friend, sir. He was like a brother to me, you have to know that. I didn't want to do what I did, but I had no choice. Things were eating him, but they weren't killing him. Not fast enough, anyway. He was in so much pain. I guess he would have bled out eventually, but I wasn't thinking about that at the time. I was thinking about Evie. About how someday she was going to ask me how her father died. What was I supposed to tell her? I couldn't tell her the truth. I couldn't tell her what I saw, what I heard. The only thing I could say was that I didn't let him suffer. So, yes, sir. I cut his throat. I had to. It was the quickest way to end it. Believe me, if you were there, you'd do the same thing, wouldn't you? When you're young, it's common to want to delve into the mysterious and unknown. Maybe you're bored. Maybe you haven't yet learned that there are enough strange things to trouble you in real life to make looking for them unnecessary. And in this tale, shared with us by author Charlie Danello, we meet a man recalling events from his teenage years when he and his friend became obsessed with an old VHS tape they found. Performing this tale are Jesse Cornett, Kyle Akers, and Jeff Clement. So remember what curiosity did to the cat. Maybe don't get hung up on looking for strange things. Otherwise, you might just hear L'Appel de Vide. Hey, dude. So I was browsing this pretty big thrift shop here in Seattle, and I found an old laptop. Not a big deal, but you know how nosy I am, so I bought it. Anyway, I, I found the audio to some kid's school project or something, and, well, you'll have to listen to it. I, I can't make heads or tails of it, but I know you like this kind of stuff. From what I got from the cashier, that store apparently gets donations from the local police station unclaimed evidence from closed cases and stuff like that. Hope you like it, and let me know if you manage to find out anything more. Ciao. Are you sure it's okay for you to use this for your school thing? It's kind of, I don't know, a, a weird topic for a high school project. Don't worry about it. It's totally fine. Well, okay. Whenever you're ready. 
Yeah, okay. Um, feel free to interject if you have questions. And bear with me. I've decided it most prudent to prioritize accuracy in detail instead of conciseness when telling you what happened. This is the way it needs to be learned, I think, if you want to truly understand the gravity of the situation. It, it didn't start with the tape, not right away. It started with Jacob. Jacob and I met because our moms were childhood friends. They'd grown up together from elementary school through high school, and remained close friends after that. When I was born, Jacob's mom, who was then pregnant with him, was made my godmother. That title doesn't mean anything to me, but in my Catholic family, it meant a commitment by the adult to stay in touch with the child and lend their help if they needed. More practically, it meant that Jacob and I would see each other a few times a month at least. We had a good friendship, Jake and I. I mean, I was kind of moody as a child, and I enjoyed Jake's company enough to get in a mood or even cry when the time came to say goodbye and go home. What I mean to say is we were close even back then. We really were. I'm not saying I'm a follower, you know, in the way that people say it with malice and bite, but I would have followed Jake anywhere. I really would have. The boy had dark blonde hair he sometimes styled in stiff spikes with hairspray and gel and a handful of plastic wristwatches he'd gotten in Happy Meals or whatever, all of them with a different movie or video game theme. More grown up, he was a little different in spirit, though considerably changed otherwise. He had replaced the eccentric hairstyles with a total indifference or a slight disdain for beauty, favoring comfort and practicality instead. The guy's wardrobe was pretty much entirely plain hoodies and t-shirts in different colors, usually gray, black, dark green, inconspicuous colors like that. And he owned like three pairs of shoes. <laughs> Christ, he was like a cartoon character that way. Anyway, the thing with Jake was that he was desperate to experience something magical. He craved the otherworldly, and our fantasies and our games where we pretended we were in magical lands or given special powers weren't enough to satiate him. We would even pretend to believe the games were real sometimes, but that made it somehow sadder after the game was over. The fact that we couldn't even trick our minds into believing that something magical had happened to us. I think that was the sign that we were growing up. When we no longer role-played as if we were truly mirror people in the inflatable pool my parents caught for the backyard in the summer. But rather, posited to each other, Oh, what if we were mer people and wouldn't that be cool? There was a sense of surrender, of having tried tirelessly to find magic to believe in and failing time and time again. I accepted it quietly, as I tend to do with anything else. Jacob didn't. Instead, he started his research. Research? Can you tell me a little about that? Jake had one goal, and one goal only by the time we were around 13. To find something otherworldly, in whatever form it might take. 
Now entering teenagehood, his research naturally took a darker turn. What with the allure of the forbidden, or whatever the hell it is that brings people like us to things like this. L'appel du vide. The call of the void. And the thing is, it didn't start particularly spine-chilling. Not really. If you want to know, it started with cryptids. Big and small which was a great place for it to start given that our town was adjacent to a national park. I confess that for me, it was all just pretense at first. I didn't think we would find anything in the woods other than small animals, or worse, spiders. In hindsight, I guess we could have found bigger animals that could pose a threat, but I didn't think so back then. Those were things that happened to other people. Jake was ready to experience the as-yet-undocumented. He was ready, and he was taking action, and he fully expected to succeed at any moment. After a while, that kind of hope is contagious, and I began to feel a fraction of his passion for the unknown. Chupacabras undiscovered and Bigfoot uncaptured, Jacob and I... By now a solid lifelong hunting team, we thought, moved our interests onto the paranormal. Ghosts, poltergeists, demons, haunted dolls, cursed YouTube videos, you name it. Jake and I were a bit limited. We were something like 15, and neither of our moms were particularly lenient when it came to us going out instead of hanging out at home during the evening or the night. For that reason, our explorations were confined to our own houses. We would have sleepovers and try to contact spirits with Ouija boards we'd made ourselves out of cardboard. Our Catholic mothers would have been livid if they had found a Ouija board. Worse if they found out we purchased one with their money. We tried to convince ourselves multiple times that we had contacted a spirit, but... As far as I know, no one had ever died in either of our houses, and the messages didn't spell out anything. I knew it wasn't enough for Jake. See, it's one thing to feel a ghost, or to use a Ouija board and be pretty sure that one of us probably didn't move the planchette, although one of us probably did. It's another thing to see a ghost, to have a picture or an audio recording or a cursed object to cling to for sanity and reassurance. The latter is what Jake wanted, and that's why everything that happened, happened. So you blame him? No, that's not really what I mean. I mean, none of it would have happened if it weren't for him, but... Uh, you know, only in the way a ghost story can't happen unless the person the ghost once was died horrifically. Oh. Oh, um, sorry about that. A anyway, listen, I can't blame Jacob for wanting proof, for wanting the benefit of undeniability. I wanted that too, I, I did. But I also didn't think I would ever get it. I assumed that I would live the rest of my life sort of wanting to experience, but never really trying to find the supernatural. And I was okay with that, though I would never admit to Jacob that I thought his attempts might be futile. In that sense, you could say this all happened because of me, too, or one of the others involved. But that's what you really want to know, isn't it? Just 
what happened and how. Right. The truth is, I have no idea where he got the tape. I have no fucking clue. And I wish I knew. Because if I knew, then that would prove to me that it does have a history, a, a past. If I could just trace its footprints back to other people whose lives it has destroyed, then maybe it wouldn't be so bad. But I can't, because that idiot probably bought it off the dark web or some weird shit, and that can't be tracked easily. Besides, what would I even do? I, I couldn't go to the police if I found something out about the tape. It, it isn't like they acknowledged the tape's responsibility in the events that transpired. Besides, I barely avoided being suspected of something when it first happened, on account of being only 16 and a good kid. Even now, they probably have that thing at the police station. Don't worry, I, I will tell you everything. But you'll be shocked to find there isn't all that much that I know. I know this is something like 15 years ago now, but it's all still very raw. You understand? It's curious that you showed up when you did. I have been thinking of Jacob lately, but I hadn't done anything about it yet. Didn't tell anyone. Didn't look at old pictures of us together. I guess I thought I could avoid it. And then you showed up. <sighs> I never got an explanation about the origin of the tape. Jacob was stubborn and he refused to watch the tape until we could watch it at night, together and completely alone. From this, you can probably infer that the point of the tape, in addition to possibly being cursed and allowing Jacob to finally document and experience the existence of the paranormal, which was to us the more mature version of magic, was that we expected it to be really scary. To be honest, I expected it to be some kind of artsy film with, you know, gory or uncanny images that would scare the shit out of us. <sighs> I wish that's what it had been. Jake would have gotten a real kick out of it. God, he was nuts. He loved getting scared. He, he thought it would be, you know, interesting to find out how much fear he could handle before something would break inside of him. In any case, we got our opportunity to watch it a couple of weekends later that summer, when my parents went away to some resort getaway they bought with their credit card points, and his parents were busy working from home and wanting him out of the house. We were... we were ecstatic. Him about the tape, me more about hanging out with my friend. I had a small TV and VHS-DVD player combination set up in the basement when we arrived. They weren't generally in use anymore, just kind of sat in the basement collecting dust. But I thought, you know, Jake would think it fun to watch a mysterious tape on an old TV in a dark basement, rather than upstairs in my room or, you know, something lame like that. You know, we really put a lot of thought into the theatrics of things, in hindsight. And yet, we never expected this. So, we are excited... We wait until it's been dark outside for a while, 10pm or thereabouts. We sit cross-legged close to the crackling TV. It was one of those old heavy ones, but small so that we'd have to huddle close to both have the perfect view of the grainy screen. He pushes the tape in, we hold our breaths, 
And nothing. Nothing? Surely not nothing. Nothing. Nothing for me. Nothing at all at first, except the static. But by then, even that had become a background noise, and therefore basically the equivalent to silence. I thought Jake would be devastated. Crushed, I tell you. But then I look over at him, and there was something in his eyes. He had the face of someone who had glimpsed, or thought they had glimpsed, a fragment of truth they knew to be, but couldn't prove. Maybe what I really saw was the face of a fish caught in a fancy hook. What happened next? He snapped his head towards me with that intense look in his eyes, and he says, Do you hear that? Hear what? I replied, assuming he wasn't referring to the static. There's like a a faint sound behind the static, like a a tone? Or more like a, a chiming, he said eyes wide and smile only narrowly avoiding his face. Well, turn the TV off and see if it's still there, I said. He didn't listen, too mesmerized by what I was sure he interpreted as paranormal, or at the very least at what he tried to pretend he believed could be paranormal. You have to understand, we were teens, yes, but we were kids more so than that. We just wanted to believe. I wasn't annoyed at him, but did want to hear whatever he was hearing, so I stretched my arm and clicked the TV off. The basement was silent. Above it, the house was silent too. I could almost hear the ticking of the clock that hung on the basement door up the steps next to the kitchen. No chiming. I looked at Jake, asking the logical question. Do you still hear it? I asked, and he shook his head no. I turned on the TV again and made sure the tape was in the machine correctly. I hit play again. Like before, there was only static. Nothing more. For me. But when I looked at Jake, man, he sure was hearing something. Or he thought he was. And I still don't know what it was, though I know what it sounded like to him. I asked him, is it words? He told me that no, 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 it was a a rhythmic repetition of a very sharp and melodic sound, like a bell, but that it sounded so very faint and far away that he sometimes couldn't even be sure he was hearing it. He concluded that it was probably recorded onto the tape somehow, surrendering, as always, to logic over his own illusions. Something like the video is just static, and the sound makes the viewer think there's something happening in the real world when it's really just a trick. I nodded in agreement. But then, uh, why can't I hear it? I asked. Well, maybe you don't have the same hearing range, maybe it's too high-pitched or low-volume for you, but not for me, he replied. I faked offense, ooing as though I'd been burned by his whip. Oh, excuse me, Mr. Soundman. It was a stupid joke. But, you know, we were having fun, despite the disappointment of the tape. And that was the first time you played the tape? Yes, the first of only two times. And I hope I never see it again. Tell me about the second time you came in contact with the tape. Yes, okay. Well, we didn't mess with the tape for a while after that. 
you know, we have no reason to, what with our very logical conclusion that it was just a trick of sound or a gimmick that seemed creepy, but ultimately had no substance to it. We went back to our usual activities over the next few weeks, playing scary video games, watching movies, hanging out at the national park a couple of times for hiking or photography. We really kept ourselves busy back then. Then one day we were bored at Jake's place. His parents were out late for dinner, so we'd watched some random, super deranged horror movie, though I can't remember the name. We liked watching it in the living room, since we would never have been able to if his parents were home, even at that age. And suddenly, Jake has the tape. I, I don't know where he got it from, and frankly, I can't remember him having taken it home that first day, though I guess I assumed he had. I can't begin to guess at why he wanted to play it again. What was it that called him to it? The idea that he could hear a frequency of sound that I couldn't, which is what we assumed had happened? I mean, that was intriguing, sure, but it wasn't exactly a novel idea. We learned all about how sound works at school. Still, we had the tape, and a mischievous grin spread across his face. You want to try again? He asked as if it was a devilish suggestion. I said, dude, nothing happened last time. It's just a prank. That's all it is. I don't know why I was so adamant about it. Well, then there's nothing to lose, he replied, the way he had a million times before with a million other things, and got to setting up the tape in the living room VHS player. And then you heard it. No. No. That's the point. I didn't hear jack shit. Not either time. There was static. And Jake was fucking flabbergasted. He was elated. But I couldn't hear anything at all. He grabbed me by the shoulder and looked at me intensely and he said, Do you hear it? Do you hear it this time? He said, It's closer this time. Closer, he said. Not louder. But I didn't pick up on that right then. Closer? He described the sound more clearly like a bell this time. High-pitched and only slightly louder than it had been at my house the first time. He said he couldn't even tell if it was really louder. But he really, really thought so. I made him drop the matter after that. It's petty, but I, I felt left out and that made me moody. Maybe I'm being a little bit dramatic, but it drove a rift between us. We had always shared so much, spent so much time together, and here was something that his attention was at least partly consumed by that I had rather an aversion to. Still, we were fine. We were us. But how did this all lead? To the events that fall. Well, like I told you before, there isn't actually that much I know. All there is are pieces, facts, suspicions, and hopes, all muddled together like a... a soup? I don't know. Here's what I know for sure. Jake started essentially disappearing for longer and longer amounts of time. It went from not being able to reach him for an hour or so to complete silence for a whole day. This might seem minor, 
Not everyone talks to their friends every day, you know. But Jacob and I were close, and, and this was out of the norm for him. For us. I tried to reach out to him, ask him what was happening to our friendship. But I never really got far. All I got back was, what are you talking about? And I've just been busy with school stuff. That was a lie, and I knew it. You have to remember, our families were involved. I was always the better student, and during this time, his mom talked to my mom and told her to ask me to talk to Jake about his terrible grades. I know it seems like I was being paranoid, but knowing what you know about what happened next, can you blame me? No, I suppose not. Can you just tell me what happened? I don't mean to rush you or anything, it's just- No, 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 I, I get it. I'm sorry. When it happened, Jake had been gone for a week. It was his longest disappearance yet. And though his mom had gotten used to worrying about where the hell he had gone this time, I think she'd had enough of false alarms and cop cars, to tell you the truth. When they found him, he was... Well, I don't know if I should say he was out of it, really. He seemed lucid. More than lucid, as if he'd been on the damnedest lucky streak of his life for the past week. Wait. Wait, you actually saw him that day? The report said he was found in the suburbs of Cincinnati. That's a state away. I was there. I was there because the moment he was arrested, Jake said, I'm not going to talk to any of you. I want Winston from Allentown, Pennsylvania, or you're never going to find out why I did what I did. So you didn't just see him, you spoke to him? Isn't that why you came to me, of all people? Because I spoke to him afterwards? No, man. I came to you because when I tried to interview his mom, she asked if I was a friend of yours. Well, it hardly matters why at this point. What you need to know is this. Jake wasn't out of it. He was focused and, and lucid and... Dear God, I swear, he was happy. And he kept to his word, too, because the moment I arrived, all groggy in my goddamn pajamas, having been pulled out of bed by a pair of officers to drive all the way to southern Ohio, Jake spoke. As I sat down, I said to him, I said, Jake, why? Who was that? Did they hurt you? But he ignored me. Instead of answering, he said, Thank God, Winston, with this wide, sincere grin on his face. He said, I found it. I finally found it. The bell. It took me so long because of how far it was, but by God, I found it. My mind immediately went back to the tape and to the chiming he claimed to hear. And as I made the connection... He opened one of his hands to reveal a tiny golden bell, leaned forward across the interrogation room table, popped it in his mouth, swallowed it, and said, Oh, God. He said, I had no idea it could be hidden so deep inside her guts. But I get it now. I get it. You seem concerned but not shocked. I guess the report already told you what happened. Huh? 
I have a confession. Huh? Uh, I may have broken into the police station's evidence archives. Is that? It can't be. Frankly, it was harder to find a portable VHS player in working condition than it was to get the tape. Do you want to watch it again? After Jake was locked away, I... I don't know. I, I guess I always attributed it to the tape, but... I guess Jake was just... unwell. I mean, I never heard the chiming at all, so it must have been in his head. Well, think of it this way. If it was all in Jacob's head, then it's like he used to say, right? There's nothing to lose? Ah, <sighs> what the hell. If I don't do it now, I never will. That's the spirit. You want to do the honors? Yes. All right. Okay. Here goes nothing. Have you heard about people who buy the contents of abandoned storage lockers? There are even TV shows about it. You buy the right to clear out the locker, sight unseen, and hope you find some hidden treasures. But in this tale, shared with us by author Tom W. Miller, we meet a man who hasn't had much luck with his hunts. Maybe this time he'll find something good. I join Mick Wingert and Ellie Hirschman in performing this tale. So maybe there's gold in them thar storage lockers. Maybe there's something terrible. Either way, let's find out what's in locker D-197. The manager of the storage facility tucked away my cash and handed me a key. Congratulations, Manny. You're now the proud owner of the contents in Unit D-197, formerly the property of one Wayne Johnson. Please follow me. We walked out of the cramped office trailer and into a humid evening. He led me down an alley wide enough for two cars. Your gate code's good for 72 hours, so that you can drive in here and empty out the unit. If anything's still in there after three days, it reverts to me. That's all spelled out in the bill of sale. At the end of the lane, we turned right, then left, and stopped in front of one of the bright orange garage doors. A faded plate by the handle read D-197. Happy hunting. The manager then trudged back toward the office. I inserted my key, turned it, and heard the bolt disengage. During yesterday's auction, I'd noticed the unit had a more secure locking system than the typical renter-supplied padlock. The other bidders had peered through the barrier of pressboard bookcases, trying to spot the treasure within, but I didn't have to guess. More valuable possessions required better protection. I made sure I won the bid. 
Raising the door, I stood at the threshold of a 10 by 10 foot box. I began moving the cheap furniture outside, knowing the good stuff was tucked in the back. That's how it had happened for my friend and fellow bus driver Vince, who, after his first win, landed an exquisite writing desk crafted by a noted Philadelphia furniture maker in the late 18th century. Vince had made serious bank and had taken his girlfriend on a seven-day Caribbean cruise. I failed to recoup my investment from my first two units, but this one would be different. The laminate had warped on the last bookcase in the space. When I lifted it, the paper backing fell away from the boards. The piece floated out of my hands, landed on the concrete floor, and folded in on itself like an accordion. After clearing away the rubble, I started in on the next strata of Wayne Johnson's possessions. I got excited when I spotted a retaining wall of bundled newspapers. While most historical societies had transferred their collections to microfilm, old papers featuring prominent dates or events could still fetch some decent money online. When I scanned the top copies, however, my hopes sunk. None of the newsprint, which came from a variety of small and mid-level cities around the country, was more than 10 years old. I was beginning to think that my instincts were off. This gamble might be a total loss. When I found the old traveling chest beneath a box filled with plastic spatulas. When I tried the latches and found them locked, I was even more convinced that I had struck pay dirt. I retrieved one of the splintered shelves from the collapsed bookcase. Using a rusty iron skillet as a hammer, I pounded the wedge into the thin crease beneath the lid of the footlocker. The gap widened, and the old lock finally gave away. I raised the lid as if I were opening the lost Ark of the Covenant. At the top was a layer of family photos, a series of portraits featuring a man, his pretty wife, and a boy between them ranging in age from infancy to young adulthood. Underneath the frames were more snapshots of the boy, crawling, swinging, dressed in a little league uniform, posing for his headshot as a high school senior. The face of the older boy looked familiar. I tapped my fingers on my forehead, trying to loosen the name from the tip of my tongue, but I could not coax recognition from the photographs. After two frustrating minutes, I noticed a nameplate affixed to the underside of the lid. Property of Christopher Jensen. The floodgates of memory opened. About four months ago, police had shot and killed Jensen while trying to apprehend him for the murder of at least 16 people. The Ring Finger Ripper had terrorized the state for the last three years, chopping off his victims' ring fingers before stabbing them through the heart. Inside the suspect's house, authorities had found a note vehemently denying any involvement in the killings, but they had also located two of the rings belonging to the victims. Despite never finding the missing fingers or any more of the jewelry, police had closed the case. I dug deeper into the chest. Below the pictures, I found a scuffed baseball and a worn black baseball glove. A neon green Nintendo Game Boy needed new batteries if it still worked at all. At the very bottom of the chest, beneath the other childhood detritus, was a cigar box that rattled when I lifted it out. When I opened the lid, instead of a collection of rocks or marbles, I found myself staring at dozens of tiny bones. Among them were discs of gold and flashes of gemstone. Slowly, I closed the lid and set the box back into the trunk. 
pulled out my phone and punched in the three emergency numbers, but my finger hesitated over the call button. Would it really help anybody if the police flooded the scene and confiscated all the loot? The victims were dead, and nothing could bring them back. Jensen was in hell right now, serving the ultimate sentence for his sins. If I summoned the police, I would only be hurting those who most needed sympathy. The families of the victims were getting on with their lives, returning to normalcy. A new discovery would only dredge up the old pain. I nixed the call, picked up the cigar box again, and rummaged through the bleached phalanges. One engagement ring featured a pear-shaped diamond, maybe three carats, that glistened among the desiccated bones. I was no expert, but I had done some cursory research. I estimated the value of this stone in the tens of thousands. A noise jolted me out of my reverie. A rustling behind a stack of newspapers against the left wall. A chill pierced my core as if the ghost of Christopher Jensen had transected my body. I had seen movies. Maybe Jensen was guarding his most prized possessions instead of roasting on Satan's spit. I set down the cigar box and walked toward the noise. A newspaper headline caught my eye. Wichita Woman Murdered. A six-year-old issue of Wichita Eagle documenting a killing in which police had no clues other than the woman's severed and missing ring finger. I scanned the adjacent bundles. Sacramento and Savannah, Boston and Boise. The stories were all the same. A murdered person found, a ring finger lost. Jensen not only had collected souvenirs from his killing spree, he had amassed an extensive archive documenting his rampage. The soft scratching, like the friction of fingernails against a chalkboard, interrupted my reading. A shiver raced up my back. Jensen's ghost was issuing a final warning for me to depart the reliquary, lest he open a demonic portal and swallow the trespasser. Daring the specter to reveal itself, I nudged the newspapers with my foot, rotating them two inches clockwise from their original position. A white blur raced into the open. I lunged backwards before taloned fingers could grab my ankle and haul me to the underworld. What emerged from behind the newspapers, however, was not a reptilian appendage, but a furry cylinder with a long tail and beady eyes. The rat scurried across the concrete and out the open door, ready to breach another storage unit and find a more comfortable burrow where it would not be disturbed. I chuckled and shook my head while my heartbeat returned to normal. I never believed in ghosts before, so why should I start now? Popular entertainment had told us that serial killers revisited their favorite places after death, that Lucifer allowed his servants to wreak havoc on impressionable mortals. Such a viewpoint presupposed, however, that a supreme purveyor of evil, or any kind of afterlife at all for that matter, existed, an axiom that I firmly rejected. Human beings were, like every other living thing on Earth, conglomerations of organic compounds that would melt into their original elements upon death. A person's carbon-based molecules had no more resilience than a marigold's or a dung beetle's. Sure, I was fondling a murderer's memorabilia, which felt a bit weird, but the objects themselves contained no inherent evil. The newspapers were mere wood pulp, the jewelry refined metal and stones, the bones constructs of collagen and calcium. After reasoning away my supernatural fears, I closed the chest, repositioned the box of plastic spatulas, 
and locked the storage unit. As I walked back toward the office, the significance of the find began to sink in. I had not just earned a solid return on my investment. I had hit the jackpot. Vince may have been able to take his girlfriend to the Caribbean, but I could offer a lucky lady even greater luxury. And while Vince had to keep driving buses once he returned from vacation, I could retire if that three-carat rock was just a taste of things to come. Maybe I would become one of those angel investors, finance the next big thing, turn millions into billions. An angel investor with the devil's treasure, said an annoying voice. I shooed away the annoying thought. Christopher Jensen was dead. He had gotten what he deserved, and maybe now, after so many years of struggle, I would too. I called out sick from work the next day. I only had the rental truck for 24 hours, and I still had to clear out most of the unit. Several times, I stopped loading to empty plastic bags only to find a collection of flip phones or a hoard of melted cassette tapes. I often glanced back at the footlocker, just to make sure it hadn't vanished in the interim. The loot was safer at the storage facility than at my apartment, where Kermit the Frog could have kicked in the front door. Once I'd loaded most of the junk into the truck, I started combing through the rest of the footlocker. A box of old baseball cards had possibilities. I didn't recognize any of the players' names, but that didn't mean it was worthless. I never had a dad who would take me to games or follow a team, so I wasn't exactly a font of baseball knowledge. Later, I'd look up the cards one by one on the internet. Maybe I could scrounge up enough cash through online sales to make a dent in next month's rent. I was about to get busy with the cigar box when I flung aside an old book report on the scarlet letter that had earned Jensen a B+. Underneath the yellowed paper was a velvety aquamarine pouch with a bulge in its bottom. I pulled out a thick gold signet ring, the head of a lion engraved on its large square face, and 24K etched on the inside of the band. I hefted the ring in the palm of my hand and estimated its value to be between $1,000 and $1,500 if it was, in fact, solid gold. I inspected the engraver's work more closely. The details were exquisite. The contours and texture of the lion's mane, the slightly narrowed eyes, the still, square jaw. I could envision this beast on the Serengeti, waiting patiently in the tall grass for his next meal to come ambling by. I upended the pouch, but found no remnant of a former finger. Maybe this had been Jensen's own prized ring and not some trophy from an amputated digit. Just for kicks, I slid the ring onto the third finger of my left hand. The gold fit snugly below the middle knuckle as if the ring had been made for me and not Christopher Jensen. Again, I thought about what Hollywood would do with this scenario. Wearing the ring, I would feel a surge of power. As the killer's spirit entered me, I would slowly transform from a mild-mannered accountant into a raving psychotic whose hobbies included axe-murdering and cannibalism. The hero would either slay me or save me by removing the ring and sending it back to hell. Nothing happened. Nothing flowed inside me except the convenience store burrito I ate the previous night. The ring, however, did have a pleasant weight to it. I left it on as I reached the bottom of the footlocker without finding anything else of significant value. 
I was going through the cigar box, dropping the gold into a quart-sized Ziploc and prying off the large gems with my pocket knife, when I sensed a presence behind me. Well, what do we have here? I whipped around, knife out, ready to protect my treasure. Vince, my fellow bus driver and storage unit bidder, stepped back and held up his hands. Whoa, buddy, it's just me. What are you doing here? I lowered the knife, but didn't put it away. Heard you called out sick, so I figured you must have won the auction and found something good. He looked at the Ziploc and the cigar box. I see sparklies and shinies. I thought about downplaying the find. But then I remembered how Vince bragged about his expertise after recognizing the antique writing desk. How he patronized me after my first two auction failures. He had offered to come with me on my third attempt, cast his discerning eye into the unit, and prevent yet another failure. I refused his help. I held up the pear-shaped diamond so Vince could see but not touch. This is just a taste of what I found. You sure it's real? If you let me see, I can... It's real. I cradled the gem and took a step back. I've done my homework. Vince looked down into the cigar box. Are those bones? Yes, I said, unable to come up with an alternative. Vince's eyebrows shot up. Who the hell used to rent this place? I hesitated, but I was enjoying Vince's awe too much. The name on the contract was Wayne Johnson, but that's an alias for Christopher Jensen. Remember him? Vince's eyebrows had never dropped, and now his mouth was open. Isn't he the guy who... With his left hand, he made a chopping motion against his right index finger. Yes, the ring finger ripper. The police never found his stash. Vince slowly looked around, as if Jensen might pop out of a corner. Dude, you gotta call the cops. I put the diamond back in the cigar box and closed the lid. Why would I have to do that? It's evidence, man. To what end? Jensen's dead, and his victims were easily identified because they were missing a ring finger. He could have buried some of them. There could be victims out there the cops never knew about. Why would he bury some women and leave the rest out to be discovered? Vince shrugged. Maybe he got tired of digging holes. It's hard work. In the back corner of the storage unit, I had found a shovel in good condition, which could fetch a few bucks at my next yard sale. Its existence didn't mean Jensen had used it to bury women. Plus, plus, these rings don't belong to you. They should be returned to the victims' families. Bullshit. I won the auction, and it's in the contract. Everything in here belongs to me. The cops and the courts might feel differently. The cops and the courts won't ever find out. The corners of Vince's mouth turned upwards. It was that smug little smirk he flashed every time he thought he knew better than I did. Manny, my man, it hasn't been that long since they got Jensen. You don't think they have eyes at the pawn shops and online waiting for someone to try to hock the loot? They might even think you were some kind of accomplice. It'd be safer for you if you just came clean and told them what you found. I pretended to contemplate Vince's words, but I knew what he was doing. He liked to think he was the master of the storage wars, but he was still driving buses. 
Now his protege had struck it rich. I could quit my job and retire to a tropical island. He couldn't stand it, so he had to spoil it. Vince might be right. The police might have put out feelers to the local pawn shops. If I went outside the city, though, maybe even to another state, I should be okay. Unless Vince decided to rat me out himself. Casually, I picked up one of the black plastic trash bags, as if I were about to fill it with junk. Hey, how are you here, anyway? It's my day off. But I punched out sick. I figured they'd call you in. I turned off my phone after I heard. I wanted a day of peace. So, nobody knows you're here? Why, why would they? I, I just thought. I looked over Vince's shoulder and pointed. Look at that rat! When Vince turned, I wrapped the bag around his head and cinched it tight against his face. I was younger, bigger, and stronger than my adversary. He flailed his arms, tried to claw at the plastic, but I was able to pull on the bag with one hand while knocking his arms away with another. His head cocked back, his arms weakening. Desperate, Vince tried to push his face through the barrier, but not even his bulbous nose could break the thick polymer. His silhouette looked like that of a hopeful sinner trying to escape the depths of hell. He might sense salvation, but he would never achieve it. Vince's body finally went limp, but I only tightened my grip. As I lowered him to the ground and kept squeezing, my new signet ring bit into my flesh. After several minutes of additional suffocation, I relaxed. I checked for a pulse and found none. My treasure was safe. I wrapped Vince in a pair of trash bags. After throwing the rest of the junk from the unit in the truck, I lifted the dead weight and placed the body in the very back so it would be easy to retrieve. I carried the valuables to the cab and set them on the bench next to the driver's seat. Before closing the back door, I laid the shovel on top of Vince's body. While I was out of town selling the jewels, I would stop in some remote woods and bury my fellow bus driver. Whether or not Jensen used the shovel to dispose of his victims, the tool would now be of use to me. In our final tale, we meet a couple celebrating two years together. Long enough to want to do something special, but not too long to have to go over the top to celebrate, right? And in this tale, shared with us by author Ryan Peacock, it's suggested that one of those Build-A-Bear type places might be the perfect way to make a thoughtful, loving gift. I mean, what could go wrong making something as simple as a teddy bear? Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Atticus Jackson, Sarah Thomas, and Aaron Lillis. So the next time you want to do something to celebrate your love, think hard about the kind of gift to get. It's probably best to avoid little stone hearts. 
I'd been in love with Aaron ever since high school. I know, I know, it's cliché. But I never in a million years really believed that we'd ever end up together. Life can be funny sometimes, though. Back then, I was too shy to even talk to him. I was happier keeping my head down and avoiding people. Aaron, on the other hand, was on the basketball team, he got good grades, and was a hell of a lot more extroverted than I was. I don't think we really even talked to each other that much, if at all. We didn't actually start dating until college, after we ran into each other at a Pride event. We'd only started talking and hanging out at first because we recognized each other. Although it didn't really take that long for things to, well, escalate. Two years later, and I couldn't be happier with the way that things turned out. Aaron had become everything to me. He was my best friend, my lover, and the person who pushed me to always be the best possible version of myself. He was there with me when I finally came out to my parents. And when they embraced me with open arms, he was right there with me, grinning from ear to ear. He made me feel like I could do anything. Like I was worth something. He made me love who I was for a change, and that made me love him all the more. We had been sharing an apartment for about a year. In between classes, Aaron worked part-time at his parents' restaurant, and I worked retail. It was a grind some days, but I couldn't have been happier with it. Things couldn't have been going better. When you're approaching two years in your relationship, you've got to be doing something right. And even through the hardest times, our relationship felt more like a rock than anything else. With our two-year anniversary coming up, I wanted to do something nice. Something that he'd enjoy to remind him of just how much he meant to me. I always wanted to make our anniversary special. I liked marking those milestones somehow, although I was admittedly not great at coming up with ideas on what to do. Thankfully, I had resources. My sister Emma had always been a little more extroverted than I was, and she was a hell of a lot more creative. It had been her who had suggested building plushies together. We'd been Skyping and chatting when I'd mentioned our anniversary, and the moment I did, her face had lit right up. Oh my god, okay, so I've got the perfect idea. So my friend Jane, you remember Jane, right? Yeah, I think I remember Jane. Okay, well, she and her girlfriend Meg went to Build-A-Bear and built little plushies for each other. She was showing them to me when I went down to visit a while back. It looked so cute, and as soon as she told me, I just had to do it with Ethan. My ears perked up a little bit. Well, that does sound pretty cute. I don't think there's a Build-A-Bear in town, though. There kinda isn't, but I found the cutest little place, and it's more or less the same. Here, let me show you. Emma had disappeared for a moment to grab the bear and show it to me. It was purple with a sparkly dress, and honestly, it looked pretty adorable. It's nice, right? Yeah, it's amazing. Where'd you guys go? It's called Little Hearts. It's in the strip mall by the Lococos. You know the one, right? Trust me, it's worth it. She didn't need to say anything else. The moment I saw the bear, I knew it would be perfect. And just like that, I was sold. 
Little Hearts didn't have a website or anything. I didn't even see it on Google Street View, so I figured it must have been new. When I pitched the idea to Aaron, he seemed on board with it, so we figured we'd make a date out of it. Build our bears, grab lunch, and then come home and watch a movie on the couch. I couldn't imagine a more perfect day to mark two years together. The store was exactly where Emma said it would be, although if it weren't for the sign, which looked pretty faded for a brand new store, I might have thought we were at the wrong address. It looked closed. There were no lights on inside, and the display of plush animals in the window looked old and kind of tacky. A glance at the sign that displayed the hours said that the place was open, though, so there was no harm in trying the door. It swung open with a little ringing sound. The store smelled sweet, but the smell itself was hard to describe. Like heavy perfume, perhaps. Although exactly what it was supposed to smell like was unclear. Aaron followed me in, hands in his pockets as he looked at the menagerie of teddy bears around us. They were dressed in cute petticoats and dresses, sailors' outfits and tuxedos, and all sorts of other costumes. The store seemed dead quiet. No music. Nothing. Are we sure it's open? His expression curdled into a frown. The sign said it was. Maybe they're out for lunch. I lingered near the door, ready to turn back and leave. I felt like I was trespassing somehow. No, no, we're open. I assure you. From behind one of the shelves filled with bears emerged an elderly lady. She had her hair up in a bun and looked as frail as porcelain, but she had a warm and reassuring smile. So sorry for the mess, dears. Just taking the opportunity to clean up a little. How can I help you? Um, we heard you could make your own bears here. I forced a timid smile. It's our second anniversary, and... The old woman's eyes lit up. Oh, how wonderful! That's so very sweet of you. Yes, of course. Why don't you follow me into the back and do watch your step? Like that, she disappeared back into the store. Aaron and I followed her. She was surprisingly fast for her age, and the store seemed a lot bigger on the inside than I'd expected. She eventually led us to one far corner of the store that looked a little bit like what I'd expect Build-A-Bear to look like if that Build-A-Bear was from the 18th century. Several unstuffed teddy bears hung from hooks on one of the nearby walls, watching us with empty glass eyes. Their bodies were limp, as if they were skins hung out to dry. Surveying the hanging bears, none of them seemed to look quite the same. Each one was unique in its own little way. Please, choose whichever one you like. They're all handmade with love. Everything is. You made all of these? It's something of a hobby. When you get to my age, you find ways to pass the time. 
I studied the hanging bears before a white one with brown spots caught my eye. I liked the look of the spots on him and picked him off the hook. I think I'll take him. Oh, an excellent choice. Why don't you pick out an outfit for him, too? Then we can get to the stuffing. From the corner of my eye, I saw Aaron reaching for a golden bear with a smile. The old lady headed over to another nearby wall with a little clothes rack filled with teddy bear-sized outfits. I cycled through them for a few minutes before spotting one that seemed just perfect for Aaron. It was an old-timey chef's outfit with an apron and everything. There were even little stains on it. I knew that Aaron had been studying business management so he could take over the restaurant when his parents ultimately retired. And he was just as good a cook as his mother was. Honestly, it seemed perfect for him. Grinning, I took it off the rack. This one. I showed it to Aaron. I caught a small smile gracing his lips. You think you're cute, don't you? Think? I playfully leaned in to kiss him. I think that outfit is absolutely adorable. How about we get your bear stuffed and see how it fits? I gently handed the limp bear to her, and she headed off towards an old machine a little further down the wall. It vaguely resembled the machines they use at other stuff-your-own-bear companies. But this one looked ancient. It still seemed to work just fine, though. Within a few moments, the bear I'd chosen looked a hell of a lot more perked up with his rightful filling of fluff. The old woman gently handed him back to me before doing Aaron's bear. I spotted a cute little cowboy outfit in his hands, and he playfully raised his eyebrows at me. I stole another kiss. There we are. Don't they look nice? Now, there's just one more thing before we sew them up and get them dressed. They both need a heart, don't you think? She reached up to the top of the machine and took down a small wicker basket. Inside, I could see several little stone hearts. Smooth, flat stones no bigger than a quarter that had been filed down into heart shapes. Be careful which one you pick. The heart that you choose will define who your bear will become. Many of them are kind. Many of them just want to love and be loved. But every now and then, you'll get a bad one. Aaron and I stared down at the wicker basket of stone hearts for a moment. There had been a strange gravity in that woman's voice. She was just being dramatic, right? I reached in and picked a heart at random. It was cold and smooth in my hand. How about this one? If you're sure, then put it in. 
Her tone almost made me hesitate. I leaned my bear forward and pressed the little stone heart into his stuffing. Then I offered it back to her. Aaron did the same. Her smile returned, and she cradled the bears close to her. I'll be right back with these. In the meantime, why don't you two think of some names for them? Oh, I already know what I'm naming yours. Johnny Cash. <laughs> You're a dork. You love it. I do. He put his arm around me and snuggled me close. So what's my bear's name, huh? I don't know. Um, what about Cookie? Cookie? <laughs> you don't like it? I love it. He kissed me on the cheek. And I love you too. It was just a few minutes later that we were walking out of Little Hearts with our new bears, Cookie and Cash. Life seemed perfect. We were more in love than we'd ever been. And we had no idea what we'd gotten ourselves into. I woke up early on Sunday morning beside Aaron, still cuddled in his arms from when we'd fallen asleep last night. My head rested in the crook of his neck, and from the sound of his breathing, I could tell he was still asleep. I pressed a gentle kiss into his neck before I pulled myself away from him. Our clothes were scattered on the floor from last night, and I gathered them up to dress myself before heading out into the kitchen. Something smelled absolutely amazing. Bacon and eggs. The perfect way to start the day. Had Aaron already been up? Stepping into the kitchen, I got my answer. Two plates of bacon and fried eggs with toast had been set out. On the counter, I saw Cookie sitting over them, like a proud chef awaiting my approval. I presume Cash had been there too, although it looked as if he'd fallen onto the floor. I chuckled to myself before glancing over towards the bedroom. Aaron really was the cutest, making a little setup like this. I contemplated digging in without him, but decided that I'd rather enjoy the fruits of his labor with him. I picked Cash up off the floor and set him back onto the counter before heading back into the bedroom to wake up Aaron. I leaned down and kissed him on the cheek. He stirred before slowly opening his eyes. Morning, beautiful. Morning. Looks like our new housemates made breakfast for us. I didn't want to eat without you. Housemates? He smelled the bacon and eggs, and whatever was on his mind was quickly forgotten. Mm. He got up and quickly dressed himself before following me out into the kitchen. I've got to admit, his acting was pretty good. He looked genuinely surprised to see breakfast there. Oh, wow. This looks really good, Vic. How early did you get up to make this? I thought he was being cute, so I just kept playing along. Well, didn't you hear? Our new little chef cooked it with his fuzzy little paws. 
I picked Cookie up off the counter and inched him closer to Aaron to give him a little kiss on the nose. Did he now? He gave Cookie a kiss on the snout before taking him from my hands and setting him down on the table. My compliments to the chef, then. We may have kept flirting with each other a little more over breakfast for as long as it lasted. Aaron wasn't able to stick around for long after he ate. He had work, and so did I. He left first, so I took the time to clean up and put Cookie and Cash back in our bedroom before going to grab a shower and get ready for the day. The nausea set in around an hour later while I was working the returns counter. I've worked through sickness before. It's not fun and you hate your life the entire time, but you do what you've got to do when you're making an hourly wage. However, that burning feeling in my stomach grew worse and worse, to the point where I was lucky that I made it to the bathroom before hurling my guts out. I remember a couple years back, I had a really bad case of stomach flu. I remember the way my body had violently curled into itself every time I vomited, and every heave left my diaphragm burning in agony. This felt a lot like that. Maybe even a little worse. I had to call it a day after that. When you're that sick, you really shouldn't be dealing with customers. Besides, as I shambled out of the bathroom to tell my boss I needed to go home, I caught a look at my reflection in the mirror. I'd never seen my face so pale before. I looked like a corpse. My skin felt cold and clammy. There was no doubt about it. I couldn't stay. I'd texted Aaron to let him know I was sick before I made it into my car to drive home. I had to pull over to the side of the road when the dry heaves started, but otherwise I made it back more or less fine. My plan was to shamble into my apartment and curl up in my nice warm bed to hopefully sleep off whatever this was. I never expected I'd have a guest. As I made my way into our apartment, every step feeling like a marathon, I could think of nothing more than going to bed. But the sight of Aaron on the couch, pale and wrapped in a blanket, gave me pause. He lay there, cold and weak. His eyes focused on me, and he tried to crack a smile. You too, huh? Yeah. Jesus, honey, are you okay? I'm fine. Mom sent me home a little while after I got in. Then the puking started. I've got room under this blanket and ginger ale. Mom always says it makes your stomach feel better. It was an offer I couldn't say no to. Aaron wasn't any warmer than I was, but the blanket certainly helped. Must have been the bacon. Maybe it went off. Did you check the date? I just tossed it when I came in. I might toss the eggs too. It has to be one of them. I just made an exhausted sound of agreement. Maybe if I had the ability to stand up anytime soon, I'd get rid of the eggs myself. But for the moment... I wanted nothing more than to sink back into the couch and rest, 
and I knew that Aaron wanted the same. It was just food poisoning. It would pass. By that evening, we both felt just a little bit better. My health had been coming back ever since I'd run to the washroom to vomit up whatever we'd eaten, and Aaron looked a little more like himself by the time we went to bed. We both still felt absolutely awful, but I was hoping that a good night's sleep might fix that. Neither of us stayed up late. I passed out the moment my head hit the pillow. I don't even recall if Aaron was in the bed with me yet or not. It was the warm dawn rays shining through our window that woke me up, which they often did. I always thought that was the ideal way to wake up. Dawn sunlight cresting across your face like something from a coffee commercial. Of course, coffee commercials don't usually include a teddy bear by your face with a cold steel knife. The immediate sight of it made me jump and the bear fell backwards onto the floor. The knife clattered against the ground. I didn't see where it fell. Underneath the bed, probably. I looked down at the bear on the floor, Cookie, and I caught myself hesitating for a moment before picking him up. Vic? Vic? What is it? The bear, Aaron. That wasn't funny. I held it up and saw his brow furrow. What are you talking about? The bear! You gave it a knife and put it in front of my face? You scared the hell out of me! What? Why would I do that? Aaron sat up. He blinked the sleep from his eyes and looked at the bear in my hand. I don't know, but it's not funny. Look, the breakfast thing the other day was cute, but this... This is taking it way too far breakfast thing. I thought you cooked that yesterday. Was he seriously playing dumb with me? Seriously? I'm not an angry person. I try not to let things get to me, but I swear I was starting to see red in that moment. I knew Aaron had a sense of humor, but never anything like this. Vic, it wasn't me. Why the hell would I... He trailed off, and I could see actual suspicion in his eyes. The nerve. Okay. Why would I put a bear with a knife in front of your face while you slept? Even as a joke, that's a little too far. Well, who else could have put it there? He didn't answer, but his silence said everything. Do you really think I'd do this to myself? I'm not doing this right now. Whatever prank you're playing, it's not funny. So please, just stop. The coldness in his voice was unlike anything I'd heard before. Aaron got out of bed and headed straight for the bathroom without saying another word to me. Truth be told, I'm not sure what else I could have said to him either. This was the closest we'd ever come to a fight in two years. Didn't make sense. This wasn't like Aaron. Even if it had been him, doubling down on it like this didn't make any sense. 
I looked at the bear in my hands and grimaced before setting him back on the table where he and Cash had been sitting the night before. I noticed that Cash was missing and wondered if it was part of some other mean-spirited prank that Aram was pulling. Somehow that didn't seem right to me. I would have tried to talk Aaron out of going to class, but he left the apartment before I could get a word out. I didn't really bother with my own classes. Yesterday's run of food poisoning had left me still feeling off, and I thought that with all the newfound stress I was under, taking some time to process everything might be better for me. No matter what angle I tried to approach this from, it didn't make any sense. That stupid prank wasn't the sort of thing Aaron would have done, and why would he deny making that breakfast the other day? Because it had gotten us sick? There's no way he could have known that would happen unless… No. No. That made… No sense. Aaron wouldn't deliberately make us sick. He wouldn't try and intimidate me with whatever tasteless display had been in front of my face that morning, and he certainly wouldn't play dumb about it all. I know the simplest explanation is usually the right one, but I knew Aaron. I knew him better than anyone. He was a mama's boy, he could be lazy, he was afraid of confrontation, and when he was stressed, he went on long drives and listened to music. He wasn't the kind of person who would be behind any of the things that had happened over the past few days. There had to be something else. I just wasn't sure what it was. Aaron wasn't home at the same time he usually was. He didn't come home until late, and even then he slipped past me and went straight to bed. I didn't need to ask if he'd been avoiding me. I knew he had been. I knew that in his eyes, this was easier than picking up the argument again. I had considered going into the bedroom to try and talk to him, but what would I say? Should I have tried to pretend everything was normal and move on, or should I have just given him his space? I wasn't sure. Instead, I just went back to playing around with my laptop, already knowing that it might be better if I slept on the couch. Maybe in the morning, Aaron and I could talk things out with clear heads. Yeah, that made sense, didn't it? He'd probably been thinking the exact same things I had and coming up with the same questions. I hoped so. Maybe then we could get to the bottom of this. Whatever this was. I dozed off on the couch about an hour or so after Aaron had come home, finally feeling just the slightest bit optimistic about tomorrow. It wasn't the most comfortable place to sleep, so I drifted in and out, and that's probably why I heard the noises in the kitchen. Movement. Things being pushed around on the counter. I sat up groggy and expecting to see Aaron fumbling around in the darkness, but there was nothing. Aaron? I called out, keeping my voice low just in case he was still sleeping. 
No response. No more noise, either. I stared into the darkness. As my eyes adjusted, I was sure that I couldn't see anyone in there. But I knew what I'd heard. I got up, my body sore from sleeping in an awkward position before turning on the light. My eyes needed another moment to adjust to the new brightness, but even as they adjusted, I recognized the shape on the floor immediately. It was Cookie the Bear. I blinked and picked it up before seeing movement from the corner of my eye. Cash sat on the counter, a kitchen knife resting in his hand. My eyes narrowed before picking it up. This again? This couldn't have been Aaron, could it? Unless he was fumbling around in the dark, it, it couldn't be. Rick? I turned to see Aaron standing in the doorway of our bedroom. He looked as if he'd just woken up. Vic, what the hell are you doing? It took me a moment to realize that I was still holding the bear and the knife. Oh, no. This was not going to look good. Wait, Aaron, I... What? Were you going to put it on my side of the bed this time? What the hell is wrong with you? Aaron, I swear I'm not... Not what? No, please. Explain this. Go ahead. I opened my mouth to speak, only to freeze. Aaron was glaring at me, clearly frustrated, and after a moment, he let out an exasperated sigh. I don't know what's gotten into you, but this isn't funny. This whole stupid thing with the bears, I don't know what you think is going to happen, but it's getting frustrating. I'm going to say this once. Stop it. All right? I... The words still wouldn't come out. I set the knife and the bear down on the counter. Aaron, I didn't! He just scoffed and shook his head before disappearing back into the bedroom. Aaron, I swear! I followed him in. I could see him grabbing his jeans and car keys. Wait, wait, wait. I'm telling you, it wasn't me. I just saw you in the kitchen. I literally saw you. Don't do this to me. Please. Not tonight. He pushed past me, heading for the door. Where are you going? I'm just going for a drive. I knew what that meant. Whenever he had a bad day or just wanted to be alone, that was his way of getting out of the house. In this case, it was his way of getting away from me. Some part of me wanted to call out to him to ask him to stay so we could talk this over. But he was out the door again before I could even utter a single word. I suppose it didn't really matter anyway. He didn't want to hear a word that I said. I could feel my heart sinking in my chest. I hated that whatever was going on was pushing us apart. I'd thought our love was strong enough to survive anything. Was I wrong? 
I put the knife away before picking up Cash and quietly taking him to the bedroom. I set him back in place and sighed, fluffing up his body a little before giving him a hug. In the moment, it was what I needed. That was when I felt it. Something sticky on his fur around his arms. I paused to inspect them. I hadn't noticed it against his clothes, but there was a bit of tape stuck to his sleeves, as if someone had taped his arms together. It hadn't been there before, and Aaron definitely wouldn't have done something like this. But then, who did? I frowned and set Cash down on the dresser before going back to get Cookie. He should have been right where I left him on the counter. But as I walked back into the kitchen and looked around... I saw no trace of him. He wasn't on the floor. He wasn't on the counter. He wasn't anywhere. A cool breeze drifted from the window in our living room that hung open. I was positive it had been closed before. A sense of unease began to grow in my stomach. Thoughts that were too stupid to take seriously began to bubble up in my mind. When I looked back at the knife block on the counter, it was just to reassure myself that the impossible wasn't actually happening and bring myself back down to earth. We should have had all of our knives in place. I knew they'd all been accounted for when I'd put the one Cash had been carrying back. Now, there was one missing. There was something else, too. From the corner of my eye, I could see Cash sitting quietly on the counter, just a few steps away from the bedroom door. I could feel my heart beginning to beat faster as I stared at him, the impossible reality of this situation dawning on me. Of course, if Aaron hadn't moved the bears, and I hadn't moved them, what if they'd moved themselves? What if they'd cooked that breakfast? Jesus. What if we were supposed to get sick? I stared at Cash, praying to whatever gods there were that I was crazy. The slow blink of his eyes told me that I wasn't. Cash, the bear who had been on the floor when we'd found breakfast that morning. The bear who'd been missing when Cookie had spooked me the next day. The bear who looked like he'd been taped up the bear who'd been putting the knife back while I found Cookie on the floor. Oh, God. And just where was Cookie? I could feel my blood pumping as I grabbed Cash off the table and snatched my keys out of the bedroom before taking off out of our apartment. I needed to find Aaron and fast. Maybe he'd think I was crazy and I... I really hoped he did. Truth be told, I hoped I was crazy. But if I wasn't, and if Aaron got hurt, I knew I'd never forgive myself. I tossed cash into the passenger seat of my car before I took off. I knew the routes Aaron usually drove. He was nothing if not a creature of habit, and I knew that if his car had stopped, I'd probably find it. I hoped to God I wouldn't see anything. But if I did, 
Aaron usually drove along the back roads on the edge of town. They weren't busy that early in the morning, and I only saw a few other cars on the road. None of them were Aaron's, thankfully. I almost made it halfway through his usual loop before I saw anything. The taillights were off the side of the road, and it took me a moment to recognize them. But as I got closer, I could see the familiar green color of his sedan through the darkness. I hit the gas, speeding towards it before pulling over at the side of the road and dashing out of my car. Aaron! When I heard his voice call back to me, it was the single greatest sound I'd ever heard. Vic. I could see him barely illuminated by his own headlights, a few feet away from the car. He lay on his back, eyes wide with terror. His shirt had been torn open, and I could see the shape of a teddy bear on his chest. A kitchen knife clutched in its hand. Cookie. The bear's body had been cut open. Stuffing oozed out of the wound, but in his other hand I spotted something small, black, and smooth. His heart. Vic, help me. I could see his face smeared with blood and knew he was hurt. I sprinted for him and ripped the bear off of his chest. I hurled it into the brush before it had a chance to do anything to me. It was in my fucking backseat. It just. Shit, Vic. It's... I'm bleeding. He tried to grasp at my arm, and I couldn't help but notice two less fingers on his right hand. I could see a wound just over his shoulder as well, gushing fresh blood. Oh god, oh god, okay, let's, let's get you up. Can you walk? No, no. Tried to run. It cut my legs. It cut my ankles. I can't. I can't. I grabbed him under the arms and tried to drag him towards my car, trying to keep myself as calm as I could. I just needed to get him to the car, put something on the bleeding, and call an ambulance. It, it sounded so simple, didn't it? In the headlights of Aaron's car, I could see the shape of Cookie shambling towards us. Stuffing blew out of his open wounds. He dragged the knife behind him, lurching closer to us with every step. He held his heart in his hand, outstretching it, as if he were offering it to us. No. I knew Aaron saw it too. No, no. It's not putting that thing inside of me. It's not putting that fucking rock inside me. Whatever it wants, it's not gonna get it. Don't let it do it. My car was right behind us. Cookie lifted the knife up, drawing nearer to us to attack again. He was moving faster than we were, and I knew I couldn't let him take a single step closer. I had no choice. I set Aaron down and stepped over him. Cookie paused, staring up at me and trying to brace himself for a fight. But without the element of surprise... There wasn't much he could do against me. 
I kicked him, launching him back a few feet. The knife fell out of his hand, and I saw him reach for it before I kicked his body away from it. I snatched the knife up off the ground and looked over at Cookie. His heart had fallen out of his hand. Most of his stuffing was gone, but with the last of his strength, I could see him reaching for that little black stone, and I thought I knew why. That stone was his heart, wasn't it? Maybe it was the thing that kept him alive, gave him a soul. And if I could take it away from him, maybe that would be enough to kill him. Cookie's paw rested on top of the stone, and he meekly tried to pull it towards himself. But he was nothing but a torn and broken bear. He couldn't do a thing to stop me from pushing him away from it and picking the stone for myself. He reached up, vainly trying to stop me from taking it from him. But as I hurled his little stone heart into the woods, I saw his body go limp. His outstretched arms sank to the ground. I figured that was good enough. The doctor said that Aaron is very lucky that I found him when I did. If I hadn't found him and gotten him to the hospital, he would have bled out. I'm just happy he's still alive. The police asked us questions. We told them what we could. The story we agreed upon was that someone in the back of his car had jumped him and then ran off when they saw I'd followed him to apologize for our earlier argument. We both agreed that they wouldn't believe the whole thing about the teddy bears. I don't think either of us still fully believe it. We burned what was left of Cookie. As for his heart, it's just another pebble in the woods now. I doubt it will hurt anyone ever again. Cash, on the other hand, has kept his place on our dresser. Maybe I gave Cookie the wrong heart, but I think Cash turned out alright. He was the one who tried to help us after all, and I haven't seen any sign that he's anything but good. I noticed the other day that Little Hearts is gone. The space that occupied it is for sale, and I don't know where to find the lady that ran it. It's a shame. There was so much I wanted to ask her, so much I wanted to know. I was going to ask Emma about her, but instead, I think I'm going to avoid her for a little while. I stopped off at her place to chat the other day. She was wearing a dress I hadn't seen before, one with a very low neckline. She said she was going out on a date with Ethan later, and maybe that was true. That wasn't what interested me, though. No, what interested me was the reddish scar on her chest. Right over where her heart would be. I didn't have it in me to ask about it. I'm not so sure I would have wanted the real answer.
our tales have ended. Are you feeling all right? We did our best to give you a fright. You may feel safe in the bright sunlight, but soon, once again, you'll be sleepless tonight. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for being sleepless tonight and for being a supportive Season Pass member. This program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.